Have you ever had the sense that your prayers lack consistency and determination? I know mine do. Try as you might, intercessory prayers often seem to falter and wane rather than flourish and intensify. If you've ever struggled with consistency and determination in your intercessory prayers for others, then my friends, Romans chapter 15 verses 30 to 33 is for you. Listen as the Apostle Paul requests intercessory prayer, intercession simply being a word that means praying for others, for these Roman believers to whom he writes. Romans 15 verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul charges the Christians in Rome to pray for him and for his ministry in a most incredible way. And I want you to see how we as 21st century believers can incorporate this instruction from Paul into our own prayer lives, especially because of the context of this particular passage and how we might pray for those in gospel service around the world, just like we saw this morning. I want to show you this morning from this text five crucial features to intercessory praying for others as modeled and taught by Paul in this great text. Those five features, they are these. Sovereignty over our intercessory prayers. Verse 30a. Sovereignty over our intercessory prayers. The first part of verse 30. Secondly, strenuousness with our intercessory prayers. Verse 30b, strenuousness with our intercessory prayers. The latter part of verse 30. Thirdly, specifics of our intercessory prayers. Verse 31, specifics of our intercessory prayers. Verse 31, fourthly, submissiveness in our intercessory prayers. Verse 32, submissiveness in our intercessory prayers. And fifthly and last, sweetness to our intercessory prayers. Verse 33, sweetness to our intercessory prayers there in verse 33. Beloved, my prayer is that the fruit of this message will accrue to the degree that everyone who's associated with the Bible Church of Little Rock will grow 
exponentially in our intercessory prayer life, especially for the sake of the greater gospel witness around the world. Let's dig in. I can't wait. Sovereignty over our intercessory prayers. Verse 30, the first part. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Stop there. From the previous message last Lord's Day, we learned that Paul wanted to drop off a collection, a contribution, a much-needed service of money and no doubt supplies for the poor saints of Jerusalem on his way through Rome to Spain. And he desired that the Roman congregation, as I've told you many times, made up mainly of Gentile believers, would support the mainly Gentile believers in Jerusalem and thereby continue in action and practice to break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You remember, of course, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ, by virtue of His cross work, tore down forever that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. But now in action, in practice, in their everyday life, they have a great opportunity to continue to break down that dividing wall by mainly a Gentile church giving money for a mainly Jewish church so that that wall would be broken down forever and ever. And Paul recognizes that for that kind of social and racial and relational barrier which exists because of our culture and because of habits born through many years and many generations, would be shattered only through intercessory prayers. And so he calls upon these Roman Christians to pray prayers of intercession for his ministry. Notice how he begins his appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Well, that's just simply not strong enough. It's, it's really more than just merely an appeal. The Greek word that Paul uses here is parakaleo, and it's a strong word of exhortation. He's urging, that's a better word, he's urging these Roman Christians to pray for him. He's not simply wishing, not simply hoping but strongly urging these Roman believers to intercede for him in his ministry, a very important ministry at a very timely moment. Not even just in the history of the church, but right then, right there for Paul, a strong urging that they pray specifically for him as he heads to Jerusalem. He's beseeching them to come alongside him in prayer, and he does so in another way also. Notice he adds the solemn authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. It is by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that I urge you to pray. That's some authority. That's saying, 
I am telling you that the intercessory prayers that I'm urging you to pray should be under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this phrase, and by the love of the Spirit. And I don't think we have to decide if this is referring to the love that the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in the hearts of these regenerated believers, Romans 5, 5, that's true, or whether it's referring to the love that they have with each other horizontally, I think it's probably both. It's the vertical love which has been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and horizontally the love that they should have for one another by virtue of that vertical relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's both. Because of the love of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in their hearts, they ought then to love one another. And by that Holy Spirit love, they love each other enough and they see the, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, which motivates them to pray for one another's ministry. That's why, by the way, I call this feature of intercession sovereignty over intercessory prayers. Why is it over intercessory prayers? Because it's done under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, and it's done by virtue of the love of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign Spirit. We see our intercessory prayers for anyone, including missionary service, most importantly including that, under the sovereign hand of God the Son and God the Spirit. The Lord Jesus wants us to intercessorily pray for others and their ministries because the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts and we ought to want to pray for them because we have a love for them in the body. Is that not a motivation for us to pray for others? Is the sovereignty of God the Son and the sovereignty of God the Spirit enough to motivate us to pray for others? Are you urged to do so by that? Do you sense that urge in your own life to communicate to God on behalf of others knowing that you do so under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and by virtue of the love of the Holy Spirit poured into your life and poured through your life to others, that's, that's praying under the sovereignty of God. That's a crucial feature, and that's why he says what he does right here in verse 30. I urge you, brothers, I urge you, because of Jesus Himself who died for us and because of the love of the Holy Spirit, we love each other and we ought to pray for one another. And then secondly, He says there is to be a strenuousness with our intercessory prayers. Look at the latter part of verse 30. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. You see, he's saying not only are we urged to pray for others and their ministries, but Paul calls upon us to do it strenuously. Strenuously. This, by the way, is the only place in all of biblical Greek where this particular form of the verb is used. Soon agonizomai. 
And you can hear that English word agony coming through, can't you? There is an agony in prayer and agony in intercession for others. Agony means to to fight, to engage in conflict. It can refer in our Bibles, for instance, to military battles like John 18.36. It can also refer to athletic contests like Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul talks about wanting to be a faithful servant. And he says, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And then he says in verse 25, Every athlete exercises, that's that form of the word for agonizomai, every athlete strains to exercise self-control in all things. He says in verse 26, I don't run aimlessly. Uh, I don't box as one beating the air. I have a purpose and a goal and a finish line to accomplish. And I discipline my body and keep it under control, self-control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It takes maximum effort. Now transfer that over into... The idea of intercessory prayer. It takes maximum effort to intercede on behalf of others. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.29, I strive, I labor and I strive with the power of the Spirit of God that mightily works within me to carry out my ministry. This is like a battle, folks. This is like an athletic endeavor on a spiritual level where we are pursuing the imperishable prize of completing the race in obedience to God. And Paul says, I want you to strive. I want you to be strenuous in your intercessions for me. He says... Also, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, using again this idea of and agony in our prayers to talk about his ministry, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, he says, For to this end we toil and strive, that's our word, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe We toil, we strive, chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. It's a fight, it's a striving. There's a strenuousness here. That's why intercessory prayer is so hard, because it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Paul says, I have striven. There has been a strenuousness in my life. And I would add that he says, implied, I've done it through the intercessory prayers of those who've striven together with me. If you want to see a context in which this is actually used in the very context of prayer, look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. 
You want to talk about the agony of prayer? Striving, strenuousness, chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, what a model. Epaphras, Paul says, who is one of you, one of you Colossians, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, listen to this, always struggling, agonizomai, on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What do you think about that phrase? Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Is there not a better phrase that speaks of strenuousness in intercession? Is that your life? Is that what you do on behalf of others? And remember, Paul says here in Romans 15 that I want you to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf. That particular word, soon agonizomai, soon, together with, he's saying collectively, Roman church, I want you to strive together with me as a body, as a corporate entity. And do you not miss that Paul is himself so humble here? So humble, praying on my behalf. I mean, here here is a man who is apostolic. Here's a man that you would assume would have his own prayer life together where he might say, might assume, might imply that maybe he doesn't need these prayers on his behalf because he himself has been the beneficiary of revelations in direct conversation with Jesus Christ himself. And yet he says so humbly, this work simply will not be done if I do not have your striving together with me in your prayers on my behalf. What a humble man. What a humble man. And what a bold man. Bold and humble is the man that says, pray for me. But does it by saying, I urge you to pray for me. I'm telling you to, to agonize on my behalf. You say, well, this is so true that this is hard work and I don't do it well. I can relate to you, my friend. I can relate. To be able to say with confidence and conviction and assurance and transparency that I am striving together with someone in my prayers on their behalf, is it true? Can it be said That's a tremendous challenge. Most of the time, I'm just trying to figure out how to pray for myself. How to pray for those who are just near around me, let alone praying for someone else in the kind of agonizing way that Paul talks about here, let alone leading a church to be able to agonize in our collective prayers for those who need it. This is is a tremendous challenge challenge. There's a perseverance. There's a strenuousness. There's a striving. There's an agony that we are called upon to engage for others in the body. It isn't easy. It's a battle. No wonder why Paul says in the context of a military offensive, no wonder he says in the context of an athletic endeavor that this is full on war. It is. It's it's war. It's a spiritual battle bar none. 
That's why Ephesians 6 talks about the wickedness in the places that we don't dwell, the the cosmic realities of principalities and powers, the forces of wickedness, and they are all around us and they are battling us because the one thing they don't want us to do corporately is to pray together in an agonizing way, in a strenuousness that will get kingdom work done. Satan doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to strive together with others on your prayers for their behalf. But oh, the spiritual and eternal benefits when we claim that victory. Can you imagine the spiritual power that would emanate from this place if we, every man, woman, and child, from the oldest saint to the least among us in age would be able to strive together as much as their capacity on behalf of the gospel as it spreads around the world. What power! What power! What availability is there in the extension of God's kingdom if we agonize in prayer? Number three. There's a third crucial crucial feature here specifics of our intercessory prayers. Look at verse 31. What is, he, what is He asking them to strive together with Him to do? He says, "...that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and..." Here's the second one. "...that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." Two things He says here. Two specific prayer requests, and that's why I use that word specific. When you're asking for people to pray intercessorily for you, you pray specifically. And he says, I want you to pray for two things. And here's what I came up with. Protection from unbelievers and reception by believers. That's what he's asking for. Protection from unbelievers, that's the first part of verse 31, and reception by believers, that's the latter part of verse 31. The first one, this is what he says, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. What does he mean? What is he referring to? Well, if you read through the book of Acts, for instance, and you see how at first Saul slash Paul, Saul is Hebrew name, Paul his Greek name, if he were this fastidious Pharisee working among the other religious leaders of that time and he was going about to try to stamp out this new thing called the way, Christianity, followers of Jesus, and he was he, even he himself headed on the Damascus Road to kill Christians if he could, at least put them in prison, and he's converted to Christ and now instead of following all of these fastidious Pharisees and other religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of those who were zealous for the law, believing that Christianity was a threat to them, instead of going with them, he's now going against them. Do you think there would be hostility? Absolutely. They who were with Paul out to kill Christians are now out to kill him. In fact, look back at the book of Acts to see some of the background on this. Acts chapter 21. I'm going to speed up here 
This is where Paul is going to Jerusalem. Presumably, he has the contribution from the Romans. This is, this is the next frame in the picture. Chapter 21, he had come into Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. That's an important word. We'll speak about that verse in a moment. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. Now, skip down to verse 27. When the seven days of purification were almost completed, and here's where it gets hot and heavy, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Now do you know why he's asking for the Romans to pray for him? To pray for protection against the unbelievers of Judea? Verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, you see, kill him. He's praying for physical safety when he gets there. He knows this is what is going to be his, his challenge. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So here's Paul being beaten threatened with his life, there's confusion. The Roman cohort, the Roman authorities are trying to get him out of there. They bind him with two chains, according to verse 33. Some, according to verse 34, are shouting one thing, some another. Just a mass of confusion. And they couldn't even learn the facts because of the uproar. And he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! No wonder he's asking for intercessory prayers. No wonder. Lord, make this a a praying church in Rome. Because when I go to Jerusalem and, and drop off this money, hoping that they'll find it acceptable, I, I know what awaits me there. He even says in the first part of chapter 21 when people are saying, Paul, don't go there. Don't do that. They're going to kill you. He says, I'm ready to give my life. But notice, notice the balance. But I need your prayers. He knows what the Lord's will is, at least to some degree. But he's also saying, but I also need prayer. And then notice, not just protection from unbelievers, but reception by the believers. I said I would note Acts 21, 17, I think this is the answer to those intercessory prayers. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And I presume by that, that meant they received your gift. 
they received your gift. Boy, what an answer to prayer. What a, what a, what a tremendous answer to prayer. They, they accepted your gift. You say, what's the big deal? Anybody be excited about accepting money and supplies? Well, remember the dividing wall. Remember in actual practice, even though Jesus died on the cross to abolish that wall of separation, it still hasn't happened in actual practice. And there is confusion and discussion and debate and even problems and issues between Jews and Gentiles in the churches, including, of course, Romans, Romans 14 and Romans 15, and also here as the book of Acts is detailing. And so maybe there's an idea that these Jewish believers wouldn't accept the money from a Gentile congregation. And even if they thought they would, maybe there's another issue, and that is there are these unbelieving Judeans, these unbelieving Jews, and they're going to fight against their Jewish compatriots who have come to faith in Christ, and now they're saying, you as a Jew, you better not accept that. That's the challenge Paul faces, and apparently it was received. Praise God. Praise God it was received. They glorified God because of Paul's ministry, it says. That's answered prayer in an incredible way. And look at the fourth crucial feature in verse 32, submissiveness in our intercessory prayers. What's he he praying will result? Here it is. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. You say, well, what's submissive about that? Well, it's submissive because he says, by God's will. By God's will. That's inherent submissiveness. By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul was all about pursuing God's will. He was very submissive to the will of God. And he knew that it was only by God's will that he would reach Rome or that Rome would reach him by way of their money and supplies and that he would rejoice in their company and that he would have joy in the midst of these believers. And so, when he grabs this money and these supplies, when he attempts to go to Rome, how did God answer his prayers there? Was it just that James and the other reported leaders were saying, we gladly receive this money, we gladly receive this support, come in, Paul has a wonderful testimony, he shows an audio-visual, everybody's dressed in nice suits, everything is wonderful and fine. Is that the way he reaches Rome? No. By God's will. You know what happens? Look back at Acts chapter 21. This is the reception. This is the reception that he, that he receives. When he, when he comes into Jerusalem, he's having to be protected from the unbelieving Jews by the Roman authorities. They have to protect him because he's going to get killed. Now, I assume that Paul may not have desired this. Maybe he knew to some degree, of course, because of this chapter, that this is the way it was going to happen. But certainly the Romans were not wanting this to happen. You think they were 
praying intercessory prayers that they would be able to give him this, this money to get to the Jerusalem poor saints and that they would stop there? No, they would want to say, and Paul, we're praying for you that God would deliver you from these unbelieving Jews and that you would not have to go through these things. But that wasn't God's will. You see that there's inherent submission to that. You pray intercessory prayers. You pray, you pray, you pray. It's like with the Kinches praying for them as the Bible Church of Little Rock and for 15 years praying for fruit in one area and it seems as though there's a hindering and a hindering and a hindering upon hindering. What is God's will? What is happening? What do we do? It's discouraging. You just keep praying and praying and praying intercessory prayers until God's will is seen and perceived and manifested. It doesn't stop you from praying. In fact, it causes you to be dependent all the more because you know you're submissively watching through your prayers God's will to unfold. We have to realize that assuming we know the will of God is different than what actually happens once we pray and move out on faith. And then whatever happens in the unfolding of His providence is what we see to be His will, and we accept it and embrace it. We must be submissive to God in our intercessory prayers and then watch the unfolding of His providence. Sometimes it's very different than what we envision when we pray. God is sovereign. And even Paul himself, speaking about this very time and his incarceration where he's kept in a place for over two years, not being able to move freely in and around the Roman church because he's being protected from the people that want to kill him. And you would almost want to say, look, my intercessory prayers are not working. And he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 19, oh, yes, they are. For my chains, my imprisonment has worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. And in one place, we know that's true because he says, oh, by the way, say hi to all of the believers in the Praetorian Guard. God chained him to a Roman soldier, and guess what? That's evangelism captivity. God is the one who determines how these prayers are answered. Don't stop praying, and don't assume you know exactly what the will of God is. His infinite mind determines what the future holds and you pray and pray and pray for others and as His will is unfolded, you say, Thank you, Lord. It's not what I would have thought. It's not what I would have assumed. It may even be that you say it's not even what I myself would have wanted, but ultimately if you're a submissive person and you pray those kinds of submissive prayers, you say, Yeah, I see it. It's actually worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. Fifthly and last, sweetness to our intercessory prayers. Look at verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, I spent some time reading that verse and saying, what's so special about that? I mean, it's in one sense one of those, those verses that he tacks on to the end 
just before he gets to this very personal section of chapter 16. And if you're not careful, you're just going to read it and just move on. And you're not going to say anything about it. And you're not going to think anything about it. But guess what? As I thought through this, here's what I thought. You know what? He is actually praying and intercessory prayer for them with this. He is putting into action his own requests. He says, pray for me, pray for me. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Be in strenuous effort. Fight for me. Pray for me. And he says, oh, and I want you to know, here's what I'm praying for you, that the God of peace will be with you all. Amen. Let it be true. Let it be true. And it no doubt wasn't just a one-time prayer. It was the heart of a man who prayed that continually. I want the God of peace, the absence of conflict, God who in this vertical relationship brings you from a place of hostility to a place of peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And horizontally, He brings all of us together, Jews and Gentiles, to a place where peace pervades the fellowship. And He says, that's what I'm praying for you. So let it be true. Amen. So let it be done. There's a, there's a sweetness because of the peace of Jesus Christ to our intercessory prayers. Is intercessory prayer sweet to you? Is that sense that God has brought us peace, His peace to us as an individual, His peace to us as a congregation, to the place where we say, we have peace, we have joy, We shall pray for others in the sweetness of our intercessory prayers. I'll tell you, this is is a tremendous model prayer. In fact, what I want to do now is I want to give you a big exclamation point to this, this passage. This is the very application that you can take away from this message. I want in some specific ways, because this is so perfect to respond to a message like this, I want you to listen as first Patrick Howell, our mission specialist, come, and then James Henrich to show us how to intercede for two of our faithful missionary couples, one you've already heard about and one you'll hear about now. Patrick? Thank you, Lance. Uh, A sermon like that is uh, right in my wheelhouse. I want to preach and pray and give and go all at once when I hear a sermon like that. I hope you do too. There's there's a lot of things that churches can be involved in. There's a lot of activities that that we are involved in. There's a lot of priorities that we have to uh, maintain. There's even things that become distractions to us from those priorities. But I heard a preacher say something a long time ago, and I've never forgotten it. I don't know that it's explicitly biblical, but I think we can find a text that would support the idea of keeping the main thing the main thing. The main thing for us to do as a church is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's so often easy for us to be uh, distracted. And Jesus said in in Luke 18.1 that men ought always to pray and not faint not be discouraged, not, not give up, not persevere, as was mentioned, because something didn't happen. In Colossians 4.2, uh, sit close to the passage that Lance talked about, Paul said that we should devote ourselves to prayer. And so I, I thought about how can we do that as a church, since the New Testament's replete with so many 
associations between prayer and the work of God, prayer and the people of God, prayer and the people who are doing the work of God. How can we as a church increase our ability to become intelligently and, and proactively engaged in what God is doing and, and really be co-laborers uh, with those who are working on the mission fields of the world and those who are, are laboring and really an extension of the ministry of the Bible church? Well, I, I had this idea and I shot it by Lance and the staff and they thought it would be great. And I hope you'll think it'd be great, too, not because it's a great idea, but because it's a way for you to become very intelligently and and actively engaged in what God is doing through the ministry of the Bible Church and through the international workers supported by the Bible Church around the world. Because if you were to press me biblically, what is the main thing? Well, the main thing is to proclaim the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. That's really why we're here. When we go to heaven, we won't be doing any evangelization. There'll be no church planting in heaven. We won't be praying for the gospel to go forth in power in heaven. That's something that we have the privilege and the responsibility to do right now. And it's a great joy. And and only we can do it. Only the church can do it. So first, in your bulletin, you have a couple of inserts. The first one, this one, if you'd like to take that out, and for those of you who don't have one, you can get some on some of the tables that will be out in the foyer as we depart this morning. But we are calling this the BCLR 1530 campaign, and we're building off of this verse and building off of this message that Lance has preached to us about the the role of prayer. You know, I had a friend who who told me a story about a, a buddy of his. They were both Christians, and they were talking about this important issue. And um, he said, well, I guess we'll just have to pray about it. And his buddy said, has it come to that? So often we look at prayer as the last resort. We look at prayer as something unique when when everything that we do, and especially as it relates to this ministry, it needs to be bathed and saturated regularly and continuously and perseveringly in prayer. The strenuous kind of agonizing, intense, focused, intelligent, informed prayer that is talked about in Romans 15. So the 1530 campaign is simply this. From 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, we'd like to see people at BCLR praying for our international ministry workers. So from, we thought about 24 hours a day, we thought that might be a bit much. And I think God would understand that, that our desire and our ambition is to make sure that we're intently praying for our international workers. From 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, we're praying and and specifically for international ministries, for all of the international workers of our church. But we're focusing right now on the Dialanka and, and the Hefners, and the reason for that is this. They are right now in the process of teaching Old Testament truth to the Dialanka people. As you know, they've had to be there for uh, several years to be learning the language. They're at a point now where they're able to communicate with the Dialanka in their own tongue, Now they begin teaching. They teach the creation story. They teach the creation of Adam and Eve. They teach the fall and the entrance of sin. They teach the story of God's redemptive work and God's work through Israel. And and let me just give you a little clue, the the material and the the approach they're using. They aren't going to mention Jesus for months 
or at least a long period of time. And the reason for that is they want the Dialanka to know who God is, who the Creator is, how He's worked through history, how He's worked through the nation of Israel, and how all of that leads to the person and work of Christ on the cross. And I've seen with my own eyes in places around the world how that works. How when you get all the way up through the the Old Testament and then you enter into the New Testament and begin teaching about Jesus and you get to the point of the crucifixion that people weep because their hope is dead. And they don't know. They don't know that the resurrection is coming. And then when they teach on the resurrection... There is an immeasurable amount of joy, and they are truly saved. And let me just tell you, in those contexts, there's no issue about the lordship of Christ because they know who the God of the Old Testament and the God of the Bible is. The Hefners are in that process right now, and I want to point out to you just some of the the specifics so that you can pray intelligently on that list. Pray that the Dialanka will understand God's word, that they'll listen without distractions. Aaron is teaching in a context where where livestock wander in and out of the meeting, where uh, events happen and arguments that occur in the village can take on a, a very significant proportion of the people's time and be a great distraction. There can be religious and cultural unrest. He's in an Islamic environment. And if the imams begin to understand what's really happening there, they could make it very difficult. So pray that that God would not allow those things to happen. Pray that Aaron would understand the Dialanka culture and language as he teaches them. He has to understand first the Bible correctly. Then he has to understand Dialanka culture and language correctly. Then he's got to be able to translate not only the scripture portions, but the, the things that he wants to say to them into the language using the idioms and the metaphors and and all of the cultural elements of communication that are unique and specific to the Dialanka. It's not not just study and teach. It's very, very challenging. And, And he needs to be able to concentrate and be able to communicate the content and the context and the proper understanding of that truth properly. So pray for him in that regard. Pray that the Dialanka will understand that God is their creator that God is their judge, that their sin violates God's law, and they're culpable for that sin, and that they need a Redeemer. Pray also, then, that God would grant repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the Dialanka people. And then you'll notice, pray for Lindsay as she serves and supports her family. I know she's had some pretty serious health challenges, and I don't know if you've been able to see many pictures of where they live, but they live in a primitive setting. And it, is, it takes a lot of time just to live. And she's trying to support Aaron as he, he's laboring. She's taking care of their kids. Pray for her. Pray for protection from harm and for health issues. And pray that Aaron would be able to spend time with his family during these demanding days. Because you can be sure that the kind of men and women that God call to this kind of work, they can be intensely focused. And they're intensely committed. And sometimes balancing those priorities can become a little bit obscure. So pray for them in that regard. And then pray that Aaron will be able to challenge or be able to deal quickly with the inevitable challenges that will come his way. It's not surprising when the gospel starts going forth, when the word of God is breaking forth, especially on a people who have never had it before, that Satan doesn't like it. 
And there are all kinds of challenges. Generators break down. You lose power. The pump starts, stops working. All kinds of, of health, potentially uh, negative health issues. All these kinds of things could happen. So just pray that God would allow this to go forth. And I'll give you a quick example. I'm not super mystic, but we had the demon of technological discouragement this Friday because we, we were trying to get this thing, and I want to thank Julie Riley for all of her work, for the things that you hold in your hand and the volunteers that worked with her. But all day uh, Friday, and I think for part of Thursday, we could not get the copier to work. And it was critical to get this in your hands today. And God gave us a little window on Friday where the, where the copier actually worked. I'm not a particular mystic, but I just think that, that the enemy, does, he doesn't want you to pray. He would be much more content for you to say, oh yeah, missions is important. Here's our missionaries, aren't they great? But boy, God expects a lot more of us folks. A lot more than that. And this is a practical way for us to do that. If you turn this over, you see that there's prayer requests for the Panjuanis and the Bridgmans and the Claxtons, the Solises in Mexico, the Lions and the Kinches. Take advantage of the Kinches while they're here to, to say, can we update this? Is there anything specific more that we can add uh, in light of the presentation we saw in, in light of what's going on right now? This is a way for us to co-labor with God and with our international workers and you understand that what they're doing is an extension of the ministry of the Bible Church of Little Rock. It's your work. It's not just their work. It's your work, and together it's our work. So what I would like to appeal to you to do is in your bulletin is take out this little square card, and if you would be so good and so desirous of being involved in what God is doing here, just put your name on the card, the commitment time, of day, so that would be 11 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 5:30 or whenever works for you, and then make a commitment of months. I'll do this for one month. I'll do this for three months, whatever it might be, and then uh, an email address at the bottom. Because what we're going to do is try to at least weekly send out email updates on uh, how you can pray of things that might be happening, of blessings or, or things that God has done that are encouraging to us. Take this and put it in your Bible. Keep it with your devotional materials, maybe, so that it, you can use it as a reminder to pray. Um, and and uh, please, it's so easy for us to say, man, a half an hour, that's quite a commitment. I don't know if I can do that. Well, you look at the com commitment that the apostles made. You look at the commitment that the Hefners made. I, I, I'm not really concerned about you keeping a clock next to your devotional time. We're just appealing to you to pray and to pray daily for our international workers who are so committed to doing the work of God uh, in places and, and times where it can be very, very difficult. So as you fill those out, as you leave today, there'll be folks from the missions committee at the back door holding offering plates. And if you would just drop this in the offering plate so that we could have an idea of uh, how you're going to be involved, that would be so helpful to us. If you don't have one of these, there's some more at the back table, and you can grab one of those and, and fill it out. You can also grab some of these other prayer reminders as well. So we, we appreciate uh, your involvement in that, and I know that God will honor your prayers in a very wonderful way, not only in the life and ministries of those who are laboring, but you might be quite surprised with what God does with you as well. Thanks.